Good morning. How are you all doing today? Awesome. I'm doing great. Thank you so much. We like to start our services every week by saying welcome to anybody that's joining us here in our sanctuary for the first time or if you're joining us online for the first time, welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us at Hosanna. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we are continuing our look at the new Jerusalem in Revelations chapter 21 and 22. New Jerusalem, the holy city that is prepared for God's people, wherein we will dwell with him in his glorious presence in heaven forever. It's a beautiful thing at the end of Revelation as we look into eternity You know, this New Jerusalem we talked about in our first part of this look that it's a bride city. New Jerusalem is described in the context of its occupants, adorned as a bride for her husband because it is the bride of Christ, the redeemed, us, those that have put our faith and trust into Jesus Christ for salvation that are dwelling in that place. This New Jerusalem is a very, very important part of heaven And it shows us something that's a really key, critical element of eternity. It's that our eternity will be corporate. Our eternity will be social. Our eternity is going to be a community. There's going to be no slipping off into the corner alone. There's going to be no isolating ourselves from one another. Uh, But it's going to be a perfect community and a perfect fellowship with God and his people. And I know some of you may have heard that and been like, oh, no. Because you tend to be the type of person who wants to be alone and and off. But I promise you in heaven, you are going to be blessed with the community and the fellowship and the connection. And it's really a big picture of how God created us. God created us to need relationship. God created us to, to need relationship with others and especially with him. And heaven is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. Now, Revelation is very clear, and the Bible is very clear that heaven, it's, it's a real place with real activity, populated with real people. Heaven is a place where all of our greatest needs are met, and all of our deepest desires are satisfied, but not desires born of our flesh, not desires born of our selfishness, but desires that are born out of our love for God our love for him and our desire to honor and glorify him. Heaven's gonna be a place of perfect symmetry and order and balance because heaven is a place that reflects ultimately the mind of God who brought order to chaos. We know that scripturally he brought order to chaos in creation, but the real miracle is that he does it in the lives of those who trust him. He brings order to the chaos of our lives. Heaven's going to be a place where we will be face-to-face with the glory of God in perfect fellowship forever. And I can't wait. And I hope you can't wait. I know we all got plans here on this earth. We all got goals and things we want to accomplish, and that's great. But there is nothing that compares to the heaven that awaits those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the new Jerusalem is a huge, huge part of it. Now, last time we looked at verses 9 through 21 of Revelation 21 and really looked at what was a description of the outside of this new Jerusalem, this city to come. Today, as we look at verses 22 
all the way through verse 5 of chapter 22, John's going to describe for us the inside of this glorious city and all the wonder and marvel that our promised paradise, a place prepared for us by Jesus, has for those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. But before we get into that, we're going to spend time worshiping God Almighty because, um, well, that's what we're going to be doing forever. We get a precursor of that wonderful time every time we gather together, whether it's here at church, in our community groups, any time where two or more are gathered, God is there in the presence, and we get the glorious opportunity to praise his name, to declare to him how awesome he is, to declare to him our thanks and our gratitude for the salvation he's given us, and it is a glorious, glorious opportunity every time we get to worship him. So join me in prayer. Father, we love you so much. God, we're so grateful for the heaven to come. We look forward to it, Lord. We, we, we say things like we can't wait to get there, Lord. And, and yet there are many of us who, for one reason or another, maybe lose sight, God, of heaven to come. Maybe we, we start to get caught up in, in the here and now, the things of this world, Lord. And, 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 and God, having goals and purpose here and now isn't wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, God, but... But, Lord, nothing here compares to what is to come in heaven. And, Lord, as your people, we know that your scripture teaches us that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And that, God, we should live that way. And our priorities should be lined up that way, God. And, Lord, we see in this new Jerusalem, this capital of paradise, Lord, wherein your presence is going to shine out into all eternity forever. Lord, that we are going to have the opportunity the glory to dwell with you in perfection. God, it is going to be a place of just absolute bliss and joy where everything is good and right. And God, this city is such a picture of the beauty that you have for those who trust in you. So Lord, we ask you to speak to us today. Encourage us. But God, we want to worship you first. We want to praise your holy name because you are worthy. You are our God. You are king of everything. You are our creator. You're the lover of our souls, Lord, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 22. And last time we were together, as I mentioned, we looked at the outside description of the new Jerusalem, the city that is prepared for us that we will be dwelling in in eternity with God forever. Now, overall, the picture of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, as it told us, coming down out of the transcendent spiritual realm to actually be on a new created physical earth in the new created universe, it is really a picture of heaven on earth. And it's something that people over the centuries have often talked about wanting to see a heaven on earth, or they refer to things as heaven on earth. And, you know, nothing that has ever happened here on earth is uh, comparable. To what is to come with this new Jerusalem. And so, but all of it together, the whole picture, as Revelation 21 opened up introducing us to the new heavens and the new earth, and we talked about that. When it says new heavens, what it's referring to is a new universe, a new creation, if you will. And then the new earth is an actually recreated earth, a planet that we will be dwelling on. And then we have this new Jerusalem, which comes down out of the transcendent realm um, to this earth, and then including the transcendent realm, all of it together is heaven. All of it is paradise. And as we've been seeing through this study, because God is ever-present without any hindrance in all of it, 
in the eternal state. And so that's why we refer to it all as heaven. So the idea of heaven for the Christian is not so much a where, but it's a what. It's a how. Heaven is not about the place per se. It's about the experience that we will have as God's people, the perpetual existence in the direct presence of God Almighty, in the direct presence of his perfect glory unhindered, unveiled, unshielded in any way. And so what we're looking at today in Revelation 21, verses 22 through verse 5 in chapter 22, it gives us a description of the inside of this holy city. And it's not necessarily a comprehensive description. It's not a detailed description of every single element, but it highlights the important aspects of what's going to be in this city. So read with me, starting in verse 22 of chapter 21. John says, I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. And so in this opening few verses here, John is, is describing really the, the collective marvels of the city, right? The, the, the amazing elements that are just catching his eye, and he's going to go on to continue to describe these marvels together. But it's interesting, as he goes from the outside to the inside of the city, the first thing he looks for is a place to worship God in all his glory right? That's the first thing he looks for when he looks to the inside. You know, we have to understand that in the ancient world, um, it was unthinkable to have a great city without temples, without places to worship the various gods in the Roman Empire of the day. As we studied through the letters, when we looked at the seven letters to the seven churches earlier in Revelation, just about every single town in the Roman Empire was filled with temples to all the various deities, we remember the story when Paul went to Athens, right? And he went into this place where they had a statue to every god. They had some type of altar to every god, including one to the unknown god, right? That's how you know you're super religious when you're going to have an altar of just in case we missed one, right? And that was the unknown god, and then Paul took that opportunity to say, I want to talk to you about that god, the real god, the only one and true god. And so, Temples were everywhere in John's day. And then the temple in Jerusalem, by the time Revelation was written, that temple had already been destroyed. And that temple was, um, was the center of, of, of Jewish religious life, right? The destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD was, was terribly devastating for Jewish people. And it was devastating because the temple was the place where God's presence was. The temple was the place where God's glory was. And so with the temple being gone, by extension, God's presence was gone. God's glory was gone. And more importantly, their ability to draw close to God in the Jewish mind was gone because their temple, 
that place where they could come close to the presence of God, where they could enter into the glory as e- at least as close as they could through the offerings and the sacrifice, it was gone. Now, before Christ, the temple that existed in Jerusalem was, was, was a very prophetic thing. It was prophetic of the relationship to come. That's what we saw in the tabernacle, and then it became the temple. It was prophetic. It always spoke to a relationship to come that God wanted to have with his people. And we know that in the Christian era, after Christ was crucified and after he was resurrected, and we call it the Christian era or the, or the, the era of grace, the Bible teaches us that God's people are the temple of God, right? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he said, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? I'm very excited for the men's conference coming up. And men, if you haven't signed up for this yet, it's a one-day conference. It's a one Saturday out of your schedule to come together and learn. And we're focusing on the Holy Spirit his indwelling and what that means in the life of a Christian and how it empowers and equips us to serve with gifts and all of that. I'm very excited about that opportunity to get into that because the truth is, as Paul said, we are God's temple, every Christian. And the Spirit of God lives in us. Now, during the millennial kingdom, as we looked at, we do understand that in the tribulation time, there is a third temple built in Jerusalem that is used, unfortunately, for what is false worship, and then ultimately becomes a a pagan altar in the abomination of desecration. But we know that third temple is is going to be restored and during the millennial kingdom that there will be um, religious rites taking place there. But it will be serving as a memorial because Jesus himself will be ruling and reigning physically here on the earth. So we know that there's a third temple, and we know that third physical temple will be a memorial during the millennial kingdom. But when we get to eternity, in the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God, John says, I saw no temple in it. There's no temple there. Now he's referring to the structures, right? And he says, there's no temple there but the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Why is there no physical temple in the New Jerusalem? Because it doesn't need one. It doesn't need one. It doesn't need a church. It doesn't need a cathedral. It doesn't need a living room, right? The New Jerusalem doesn't need any place for the gathering of God's people because everywhere is the gathering of God's people. God is ever-present. He is fully present in eternity. We've looked at that already. This this whole city with with transparent streets and transparent walls and, and and the glory of God just shining out into everything. Everywhere is God's presence. So there's no need for a place where that presence is veiled or restricted in any way. There's no need for temples. There's no need for any of that because everywhere is the gathering place. In eternity, there's going to be nowhere that you can't draw close to him. Did that make sense? Okay, because it didn't make sense when I just said it. (laughs) There is nowhere in all of creation where you can't draw close to God. That means in the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, no matter where you're at, you're right there in God's presence. No matter where you go, God is right there with you in his full glory, unhindered, unveiled in any way. 
Revelation chapter 7, if you remember back there, it spoke of the redeemed in heaven. And it said this in Revelation 7. It said, the one seated on the throne will shelter them. And that word shelter is an interesting word. In the Greek, it means to, he spread his tabernacle over them. And that should make you think of the tabernacle that the children of Israel had in the wilderness. The tabernacle, which was that meeting place with God in which the, the holy place was. And inside that was the holy of holies, right? The very presence of God. And it was a special tent, and you get into the Old Testament, right? When we get there, we'll study all those details, and it's just a beautiful picture that points to Jesus Christ. It's really fun to study those things. But we see that there was this tabernacle and then a temple, but in heaven, it says God spreads his tabernacle over his people. What does that mean? It's not that the temple is removed, per se, in heaven. It's that it's expanded. It's no longer a tent. It's no longer a structure. It's expanded such that the entire universe, all of existence, is now his temple. Everything everywhere is the holy place. Why? Because everything everywhere is the dwelling place of God. His presence is in all places. His presence radiates out to everywhere without hindrance. And that's what verses 23 through 25 get into. They speak of this radiating light, this ever-shining, pervasive glory of God that's just going to permeate everything. And it's spoken of this way. It says there's no need of sun or moon to shine on the city because the glory of God illuminates it. Now, I was talking to somebody recently, and they said, does that mean in eternity there's no sun, there's no stars? And I'm like, well, not necessarily. It just, sees there, it just says there's no need of the sun and the moon, right? Um, I think if there's a new universe created, I think the, the creativity of God that we see in the heavens today is, is still going to be there, right? I don't know exactly how, but, but there's no need of the sun or the moon because the glory of God illuminates it. And then notice this really interesting phrase. It says, the lamb is the lamp, or the lamp is is the lamb, right? Um, That word lamp there in other translations, if you have a different translation, it might say the light is the lamb. And the reason is, is because what that word refers to is a source of light, right? And so in the original Greek, it referred to a lamp that was the source of light. And that's why other translations just kind of skip the source idea and says he is the light. But the idea is that the lamb is the source of the light, that the glory just radiates from him. And, and this was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 through 20. It says this, The sun will no longer be your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set, and your moon will not fade. That's an interesting detail, right? Is the rotation of the earth different in that? We don't know. But it says, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your sorrow will be over. All of this is telling us that in eternity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead will have all of the glory that he had before he came to earth. 
right? John, verse, John chapter 17, verse 5. This is what Jesus prayed. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. You see, John tells us in the beginning that, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, that Word came and dwelt among us. And as you study through the Gospels, you see that, that God, the Son, in all His glory, clothed Himself, covered Himself in that sense, in, in frail humanity, it calls that, right? A little nod to us, lest we think we're strong, right? Frail humanity. And we know that, that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man at the same time. But we know that he, he set aside some of the rights and, and ability and power he had. He didn't cease to be God, but he set aside a little bit of his glory. And in John 17, 5, he was praying that, hey, in the future, what's coming next, glorify me with the glory I had before the world existed. See, while Jesus was here on earth, he was, he was deity, he was fully deity, but that deity was veiled. It wasn't gone, it was just veiled. He still did miracles, we see. He still read people's minds, right? But his full deity, his full glory was veiled to the degree that the few times that veil was lifted, the disciples were amazed. You guys remember the story at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Peter was blown away. Because the full glory of Jesus was displayed there on that mountain, and they were just like, ah! Oh. And then Peter, in his infinite superior intellect, was like, Kid, we built you a house. Love Peter, right? Sometimes he's just overwhelmed and says things you're like, What? You know? But how many of us identify with that, right? But in eternity, this, this glory of God will just shine without, without hindrance. The veil is completely gone, and he, the lamb, is the light of eternity. And so verse 24, it tells us that the nations will walk by its light. And it's talking about the light in the city, the light radiating out of the city. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. It will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. That phrase, the nations, it means in the Greek, all people. All people. See, as I mentioned in the intro, that our eternity is going to be a corporate existence. It's going to be an existence of community, an existence of relationship, an existence of fellowship. And I know here on this earth, there's some of us that are extroverts and some of us that are introverts, right? And some of us that just love being around other people, and some of us are just like, whoa, step back a little bit, you know? And, 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 and we have our different ways that we relate in relationship. But even the most introverted introvert still needs connection with people. And in eternity, that connection is going to be perfect with all people and with God. There's going to be no separation, right? Remember we talked about death? was more than just a physical death. Death in the biblical context talks about a separation, right? When our spirit is dead, our spirit is separated from God. 
and all of that death in every context and every aspect is going to be gone forever in eternity, meaning that there's going to be this full connection, this full unity, this full fellowship and perf perfection. It's going to be this wonderful, beautiful thing. And it says there, the nations. It means all people, right? Now, in its other uses throughout Scripture, when it's referring to all people, what it's referring to is Gentiles and Jews. It's every tribe. It's every tongue. It's every people. But in heaven, in eternity, we know that what that's referring to is all the redeemed. Because it's only the saved that are there in heaven, right? It's only the, the redeemed that are there. The point here is that there's no limitation to God's presence. There's, there's nothing prohibiting access to the glory of God based on any of the, the separators that exist in our world today. Heaven is not limited to one group of people, one ethnicity of people, one nation of people. There's no prejudice in heaven. There's no classism. There's no racism. There's no rich. There's no poor. It's just the people of God without division, without separation, all as one who are there because of Jesus. That is what makes them God's people. In heaven, they are Jesus. Yeah, today we have divisions of people, and we got nationalities, and we even see all the way up through the millennial kingdom that there's this, this group of people called the Jews that are God's chosen people, and there's a special plan and purpose of them through the prophetic revelation of history. But in eternity, it's like we're just all God's people now of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue. And we're there because of Jesus, not because of who we are. Not because of our ethnicity, not because of our background. We're there because of Jesus, all engulfed together by the light of God's glory. And then it says that they're going to bring their glory into it, right? This light, this glory radiating out of the city. And then it says that the, the kings and the nations, they will bring their glory into it. What is that talking about? That idea of glory there is, is the idea that everything about them that is worthy of acknowledgement in any way is subsumed into God's glory. We saw a picture of this earlier in Revelation when the elders who had crowns cast them at the feet of Jesus, right? You remember that? They had crowns. They, they had been recognized by the, by the God of glory, by the king of creation. They had been recognized for their, for their service. And, and, you know, and we talked a little bit about that back then. There's all these crowns that are mentioned that, that you'll receive right, for your service to God. But, but even in, in that moment, in the presence of God, the elders are like, we're just going to throw it at your feet. You are worthy, God. You are worthy. There's nothing in and of us that, that supersedes your glory. You are the one that's worthy. And this is the idea of them bringing their glory into it. And it's really a, a, a preview of the worship we're going to see in chapter 22. But moving on here, verse 27. It says, Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, this verse isn't indicating that there's anything unclean in heaven. All right. It's not indicating that there's anything unclean or detestable in eternity because we know just through the study of Revelation that all sinners and death itself has already been cast into the lake of fire at this point, right? We're, we're past all of that. We're in the eternal state. 
But what this is is an exhortation. It's, an, it's a warning to present-time readers, right? Remember, John was on the island of Patmos when he got this revelation. He wrote it down, and then this letter went back out to the seven churches and then has been with the church for all time to the point where we're studying it now. It's an exhortation. It's a warning to present-time readers that the only way to participate in this future city is to turn one's life and loyalties over to the Lamb now. It's the only way. The only way to get there, the only way to be there, the only way to have the opportunity to experience all of this wonderful glory in the presence of God and in perfect community and perfect fellowship and joy and bliss and all of that. The only way is if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And the only way to get your name written in the Lamb's book of life is to submit your life to the Lamb, is to come to Jesus Christ in repentance and asking him to forgive you of your sin and to, to, to come into your life and to be Lord of your life and you give your, your life over to him, that whole salvation concept that we talk about so much, that is the only way. No one will ever find their name in the Lamb's book of life because of anything of their own glory. That's why we see that picture of them going, there's nothing in us that supersedes the glory of God. They're just going to give all the glory to him anyways. So it's not going to be like, wow, you, you served a whole lot at the church. That's great. That's wonderful. You were very generous with your, with your, your finances. That's great. That's wonderful. You were, you were so giving of, of things and helping people. That's great. That's wonderful. And all those things are, are important and necessary for us to do uh, church, right? But none of those things get you into the Lamb's book of life. It's knowing Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That's the only way. And you'll notice that anybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they're kind of described here as unclean. Because it's the blood of Christ that washes us of all sin. That's what the Bible teaches. That when you trust in God, you say, God, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you died on the cross. I believe that you did what you did and what your book tells me you did for me. I put my faith in that. I trust in that for my salvation. The Bible says you're washed clean by the blood. That your sins are gone. That God no longer sees those sins when he looks at you, but he sees a spotless, perfect child of his. He sees you as you will be in heaven when you are there with him. How glorious, right? And, and without him, we're unclean. Without him, we're blemished. Without him, our actions are detestable. We're sinners by nature. But it's through him that we have the hope of heaven. It's through him we have the hope of redemption and salvation. It's, the hope of, it's through him we have the hope of, of, of paradise. And that's what this verse is, is a warning. As he's describing this vision he is seeing of this, this perfect city and this perfect creation, this perfect paradise. Don't think you're going to get in there because you're a quote-unquote good person because there's no such thing. Compared to God's glory, we're all sinners. 
We've all fallen short. But for those that know the Lamb, those who have been washed clean by his blood, glory, glory, hallelujah. So we get to chapter 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. I think every city in America or most of them in, in probably the world, they have a main street, right? Here in Bellflower, California, our main street is, is named, guess what? Bellflower Boulevard, <laughs> right? It's pretty clever, I guess, you know? A lot of cities, the main street is called what? Main street, main street right? Um, now, we've already been introduced to this main street in Revelation chapter 21, verse 21. It said the main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Right? And we talked a little bit about that, like gold as we know it today isn't transparent. But, but in this perfect city, there's going to be a gold that is transparent as glass as God has created this perfection. But here we get more detail about this main street. Down the middle of this transparent street, it tells us is the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, throughout the Old Testament, prophets often use images of rivers to express um, richness, to express provision, to express peace. Um, For example, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 18, it says, if, you, if only you had paid attention to my commands, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. In Psalm 46.4, more prophetically and specifically talking about this river, it says, there is a river. Its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. And so this picture of this river that John is seeing, I believe like most of this, it's a literal image he is seeing, but again, Things can be both literal and symbolic at the same time. So what does this river represent flowing from the uh, throne of God? Well, first it tells us it's clear as crystal, right? Clear as crystal. It's pure. It's absolutely unpolluted is what the word means. It's reflecting the, the characteristics of this whole city. You remember when it was talking about the walls of the city are gold clear as glass, and we talked about that word means, means without blemish, right? The material had, didn't have any foreign objects in it. It was, it was a pure material. This whole city is made of this, this clear, perfectly unblemished, clean material all the way through. It's pure. The whole place, the whole existence is perfect at this point. And so this river being clear as crystal flowing from the throne. It's a literal representation of the richness that God has for his people in eternity. It's a permanent provision. It's a permanent supply of the peace of God that will flow unimpeded forever. And it says, the river of the water of life, that's that word zoe that we've talked a lot about. That means more than just being biologically alive. It means having the vigor the zest of life, the zeal, the passion of everything is good, everything is right, everything is well. I'm just, I'm alive. And it's going to be a permanent provision of that forever. And the idea, the picture is that in heaven we will be fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. With no want, no lack. And that satisfaction will be without any impurity. 
There will be no selfishness to the satisfaction. There will be no, no inappropriateness to that. It's, it's, it's just being fully at peace and satisfied in the presence of God forever. Now, it says it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So John's noting the, the source of this provision as he is noting the source of the light and the glory. You guys remember when Jesus was here on earth, he said, come to me all who are thirsty. Jesus is and has always been and will always be the source of true joy and true peace and true satisfaction. In him we find satisfaction that is like a cold drink of water when we're parched, right? But even that is is just such a woefully inadequate way to describe the reality that is going to take place there. And he's talking about that, that come to me if you're thirsty. We all have spiritual lack. We all have that sense of separation without Jesus. We all have that sense of something's not right, something's wrong. There's a sense of injustice to even those that don't know the Lord, but they have a, a moral t- morally relativistic list of priorities in which they judge things. And that's what people do without Christ. I'm not as bad as that person. But the very fact that you're making that judgment proves that you have some moral compass of some kind. It's just calibrated wrong. And when Jesus comes in and brings us that peace, and we know that we're at peace with our Creator, it's amazing. And so, it says, The tree of life is on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will, be, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. Now, of course, reading this phrase, tree of life, if you're a Bible student, that should take you back to Genesis chapter 3, right, where we see the tree of life mentioned for the first time there. It was the tree of life that, that existed in the Garden of Eden there, and it was the tree that, that had fruit that, that some go, well, they ate that fruit, and it gave them eternal life, right? Um, But we see here now with with creation remade, we're reintroduced to the tree of life. Now, it's interesting. There's all of history kind of hangs on three trees, if you will. Um, You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we read about in the garden. You have the tree of life. And then you have the tree, if you will, that Jesus was crucified on. That first tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's where... That's where man was separated from God. That's where we lost salvation, if you will. That's where our perfect communion, our perfect relationship with God was severed and and the whole title deed of the earth was given over to Satan. It was there at that first tree. That was where man sinned. And and, then that tree, in a sense, took away man's spiritual life. That is when death entered. That's when the separation of the soul entered. That's when all of the, the, the problem of everything entered. And there in the garden was also the tree of life. But we read that, that God had to kick them out of the garden because they had sinned. And he had to guard that tree with the cherubim and the flaming swords. And he had to guard entrance to all that, lest man eat of the tree of life and live forever in his separation from God and live forever in his sin and live forever in death. But then you had that third tree, that cross that Jesus hung on the cross that brings back life to us. That cross, that work that was done there when we trust in the perfect God who hung on that tree were granted eternal life. 
And now here in eternity, we see that that tree of life that was kept away from us since the garden stands replanted, stands restored, no longer kept, no longer barred from us because in heaven there's no possibility of sin and death. It is done. It is forever gone. Now, the heavenly landscaping here might be hard to picture because it says the tree of life. That's singular. But then it says it's on each side of the river, right? Um, Some people argue about this, right? You know, what does it mean? You know, it's possibly a very large tree whose trunk splits onto either side of the river is one way to picture it. Um, some see it as, as the tree of life is referring to a collection of trees, kind of like a, you know, an orchard where they're lining both sides. Um, I don't think it matters, honestly, right? But you'd be surprised how much you could find on the internet people arguing this point here. Um, I think the point is that the tree of life is accessible. It's accessible, right? And then it goes on to tell us about these 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit every month. Um, This is an interesting phrase considering that we're in eternity here, right? We're in eternity, and yet we read here indicators of time. 12 kinds of fruit that are born every month. And, And that should obviously bring to mind the calendar, right? There's 12 months in a year. Right? We track time that way in our current uh, relationship to time. And, you know, we wrap around to January every year. And, you know, we, we, it, it's, it's the cycle of time that we track through these idea of 12 months. So the indication here seems to be that there is still a passage of time in eternity. Now, we've talked about this before um, in, in how it references things earlier in chapter 21. So there, there seems to be some passage of time or some relationship to time in some way, but we don't know exactly what it's going to be. We don't know that in a, a, if in our glorified bodies we're going to be subject to time the same, thing, same way we are now, right? We're subject to time now in the sense that entropy happens, and from the day we're born, we're dying. <laughs> we're, we're, we start to decay, but that's not going to happen in our glorified bodies. We'll be immortal. Right? But, but there's just this indication that there's some reference. There's some reference to time passing or, or some type of cycle that is referenced here. And so this, this fruit being pictured, you know, bearing its fruit every month, it's unclear whether it's one fruit for 12 months or it's 12 fruits every month. Again, I think it's a detail that's irrelevant. Um, but there's an ongoing cycle of provision for us in heaven that God will provide our needs forever without ceasing over and over and over and over and over. But this does lead to another interesting question as some people go, are we going to eat in heaven? Right? How many of you like food? Right? How many of you would love to eat your favorite foods without gaining weight? Heaven! Right? Um, yeah, I like food too, you know? Um, Food's a, food's a, a pleasure. It's, it's, it's a, I believe it's a gift that God gives us, right, to enjoy food. But the presence of fruit coming from this tree here, it seems to indicate, um, because I do believe the literal interpretation comes first, um, that there will, be, there will be eating in heaven to some degree. The difference is, as you go back and you study the glorified body and the glorified state and stuff, uh, we won't have to eat if that makes sense, right? Right now we have to eat to replenish the fuel, replenish da-da-da-da-da, and so on and so forth. Um, Our glorified bodies will be immortal. We won't have to eat. It won't be necessary for health and life. But in Luke chapter 24 and John 21, we see the resurrected Jesus enjoying food. It was a pleasure, 
right? Um, in Genesis 18, the angels, supernatural beings, ate with Abraham. In Revelation 19, the great heavenly reunion between Jesus and his people is called the marriage feast of the Lamb. So I, I, I think there's going to be eating in heaven, right? But it's going to be a part of the joy and the pleasure, not something you have to do, you know? Um, you know, there's the golden table of showbread that was in the tabernacle and temple, and the idea was that it was always there. It was ever-present, ready for the priest to partake of. And so we see this tree standing in the golden street of New Jerusalem, bearing fruit monthly for what is going to be the immortal king priests of Jesus. That's us, all the redeemed there, to enjoy perpetually. It's going to be a part of the joy and the, and the blessing of being there in heaven. And then it says this interesting phrase, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And you might go, well, I thought we're in eternity, right? Why is healing necessary in heaven? Um, I thought there's no death and no disease and no sickness and no curse or anything that's a result of the curse. And you're right. None of that is there. That word healing in the Greek is the word therapian. We get our word therapy from that word healing, Right? Um, or the word therapeutic, something being therapeutic. That's, that's this word that is rendered healing in, in the Greek. And so the word refers to that which adds vigor to life or a supplement that enhances living. So the idea here is that, that the root of this word, um, or this word is carrying the idea that the leaves aren't for healing because we're sick. The leaves are just therapeutic. They add to they're just an enhancement to the life that we have there in heaven. And what's really interesting is the root of this word therapian, even though we get our word therapy and therapeutic for it, the root of the word carries the idea of serving or ministering. So it's almost like it's saying that the leaves of this tree are going to serve and minister to the nations. How? By adding to and just enhancing life, just bringing joy and vigor into life in eternity. So then it says there will no longer be any curse. And that's really speaking of the curse that exists on us today because of sin, right? In heaven, the curse is gone. The curse that man has lived with since the fall and all its effects, right? Pain and sorrow and death and disappointment and everything that was a result of the curse is gone. Now, this is in contrast to the millennial kingdom. If you remember during the millennial kingdom, there are still aspects of death still present, right? Those that were raptured out come back with Jesus in glorified bodies, but there are humans who live through the tribulation and then live into the millennial kingdom who still have earthly bodies, who are living and bearing children. Right? We read that in Isaiah 65.20, talking about the millennial kingdom, and it says, indeed, the one who dies at 100 years old will be mourned as a young man. So there's still death during the millennial kingdom, physical death. But in the new heaven and the new earth, all aspects of death are gone. It's, it's gone permanently. There's no more physical death. There's no more spiritual separation of any kind. And instead of the curse, it says the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. His servants will worship him. That word worship doesn't just mean singing songs. It includes that. It doesn't just mean, you know, vocal instrument or utterance or instrument instrumentation or any of that, right? The idea of worship means to serve God by carrying out religious duties. So the idea in heaven is that we're not going to just be sitting there on a cloud strumming a harp. We're not just all in a big sanctuary just forever singing. That we're going to be doing things. We're going to be, there's work in heaven. There's, there's activity in heaven. We will do stuff. What stuff? 
I don't know exactly, but it does tell us that we will bring our glory and honor into the city. We will be bringing everything that is worth anything to him just to honor him with it perpetually. It'll all be to and for the king of glory forever. But instead of the picture of arduous, curse-stained work, right? Remember, go back to the garden, they sinned. And what was the curse that landed on the man? You're going to have to work the land, and it's going to be hard, right? You're going to have to strive to earn and to feed and to eat, and, right? That work isn't going to be a bummer anymore. It's going to be this blissful service to our king of glory forever. It's going to be awesome. And so it's a picture of this blissful, blessed, joyful worship of God in our service to him throughout all eternity. Then it says, they will see his face, verse 4, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So this idea of, of seeing his face and his name on, on, on their foreheads, it's this picture of this um, heaven is, is going to be this place of just intimate face-to-face fellowship with God. It's going to be an eternal existence of, of, of being identified with him in the deepest and most intimate and perfect of ways, right? There's, there's never going to be any doubt that you belong to God. You know, I know many Christians today, right, we go through stuff. And sometimes we're like, am I even saved, you know? And, and we wrestle with such questions, right? Because our sin nature still with, lives with us, right? Paul dealt with that. Paul was like, why do I do the things I don't want to do and why don't I do the things I want to do? And I always love Paul's answer to that, right? Ah, thank God for Jesus. (laughs) That's it. That's his answer. Thank God for Jesus. Because if it was up to me to be saved, I'm lost. But if it's up to Jesus, we're eternally saved. And so this idea is that we're going to be in this, this perpetual, just perfect fellowship without doubt of any kind. And, you know, because of Jesus, we can know something of the face of God today. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes this. He goes, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus is to know something of the face of God. It's in Jesus we get a glimpse of the glory of God. It's veiled. It's not in its full radiance yet because we couldn't handle it, but we see something of the glory of God in Jesus. But Paul went on to anticipate an even greater fulfillment of seeing the face of God. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he said, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. And that is really the glory of heaven. When we're in heaven, nothing will interfere with our vision of Jesus. Nothing will block our vision of Jesus. Nothing will impede our vision of Jesus. We will see him clearly in his full glory because sin and death is done away with. We will see him clearly because all worry and concern and anxiety is gone. We're at peace. We will see him clearly clearly because every idol, every false God, every possible thing that, that, that we in our sinful nature would want to worship, that's all gone. It's a pure worship, and the greatest glory of heaven will be to know Jesus more intimately and more wonderfully than we ever could here on earth. The darkness of this age will be gone forever, and we will enjoy, as it says, an eternal reign, an eternal reign 
You know, it just stands in a little bit of contrast to the millennial reign, right? That was a temporary thousand years. And I know we go from one to the other, but now it's reigning forever and ever. This reign with God, our King of glory, will be into all eternity without the presence of sin, without the presence of death, without the presence of separation from him. It'll be perfection. And I can't wait. Now, what a city. What a heaven, what a paradise to look forward to. The Word of God, you know, opens with the story of paradise lost. That's what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis. And here at the end of Scripture, it closes with the story of paradise regained. We see paradise being regained in the images of the, the river and the tree of life in the absence of the curse. We see the picture of close, intimate fellowship restored, ruling and reigning with God, resumed. It's a perfect fulfillment of everything. No more curse is a perfect restoration. The throne in their midst, it's a perfect government at that point. The servants will serve. It's perfect worship. We're face-to-face with God, a perfect transformation, right? We're able to be face-to-face with him. His name on our foreheads is a perfect identification. God be in the light. We have perfect illumination forever. And reigning in with him forever and ever is the perfect exaltation. Why choose anything else? Why choose anything else? This, this is the city that he has in, has in store for those who are his. Those who call him Lord and Savior, Master and Friend. It's, it's a place where we will be always and forever satisfied at, at perfect peace. It's a place where it says the river of life flows. The tree of life will perpetually bear fruit. Our needs will be perpetually fulfilled in every way. It's where our deepest needs on every level will be forever fulfilled perfectly. And it stands in such contrast to this life. This life where we're tempted with sin. And we know sin never satisfies. Sin always promises satisfaction, but it always leaves us wanting more and more. And it just ropes us in step by step, but it never satisfies. This world and all it has to offer never fully satisfies. But a life following Jesus Christ, it gives us a taste of ultimate satisfaction now. It's in Christ we can find a peace-filled contentedness that only comes from knowing that your life is safe in the hands of the one who created you, that your future is safe in the hands of the one who created you. And the satisfaction that we can experience in him today, it's just a glimpse of what is to come. But if you know him, it's a promise and a guarantee of that future. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We look forward to you. We look forward to heaven. God, there's so much that happens in this life that would cause us to say, I long for a place of perfect peace, a place of perfect illumination, perfect worship, under a perfect government, to be perfectly transformed, to exist in your presence, to be perfectly identified with you forever. But God, we're still here. And Lord, we look forward to this heaven, but God, help us to not forget that we have a call here and now to choose you, to choose obedience, 
to choose to reflect your glory in our lives, to choose to do and be who you've called us to be, to lay down the the sins, the weights, those things that ensnare us, God, to run the race after you, to be like you, to represent you, to proclaim you in, in every way, God. And Lord, we're so grateful, Lord, that, that your word tells us that, that, that Lord, yeah, you, you, you see the lives we live and you're blessed by that. And yes, there'll be reward for that, God. But Lord, the ultimate reward is just to be in your presence and your glory forever without hindrance. And Lord, we're going to cast all our crowns at your feet. We're going to bring all glory and honor to you. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing, Lord. So God, help us, Lord, to keep heaven in sight as we live in this life. Help us to keep the new Jerusalem in sight as we live in this life. Help us to to look forward to this perfect dwelling with you and that it would motivate us and, and inspire us to be who you're calling us to be while we're still here in this life. And Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these promises. And we thank you for this revelation because the beauty of all that is you is really a revelation of the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ. And we thank you. We love you so much. Teach us, mold us, and shape us. Use us. Be glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.